0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I chat with Dr. David Els. David is a clinical and sports psychologist that has worked with various elite sports groups in the lead-up to major events and also returning veterans as they adjust back to life. David has a number of areas of interest, including obsessive-related conditions, performance, trauma, relationship-based issues, and how judgments of our own abilities affect performance in sport, work, and life. David lives in Toowoomba and loves to spend time with his family outdoors doing a variety of activities. I have invited David to this podcast because he is my psychologist. I have worked with David since 2013, and he plays an important part in my personal well-being strategy. At the start of each year, I book in four appointments, and they are my opportunity to maintain my mind, my mental health. In this conversation, we explore what do psychologists do? the impact of our nervous system on the way that we feel and function and relate to others, what brings people to therapy, is it inspiration or desperation, what prevents people from seeing a therapist, what gets in the way, what blocks us, some of the common struggles we face as humans and that therapy can help us with, and the importance of having a space to talk to someone without judgment and without any competing agendas. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Else. Welcome, David, to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thank you, Meg. Nice to be here with you.
0: Oh, I'm so excited because this is not normal where I get to ask you a few questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I suppose people listening now will be wondering how you're going to reference that, but yes, you're right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I've let people in on the that the fact that you're, you are my psychologist, you've been my psychologist for a number of years now. And it's really fascinating because when I first thought of the idea of going to a psychologist way back, I went to one and I found mm. it so uncomfortable. Mm. I found it really clinical. And instantly, when I walked in a room, I thought there was something wrong with me. Like the way that he looked at me. I thought there must be something wrong with me. It's Mm. kind of like the feeling that when you see a police car and you're driving, you automatically think, oh, have I got my seatbelt on? (laughs) I'm doing it wrong. And so that wasn't the best experience. And he asked me some pretty tough questions. So I sort of put that to the side and thought, oh, therapy and psychologists, that's not for me. That's a bit too hard. And then when I moved to Toowoomba, Mm. I made my first adult friend in Toowoomba, which was really exciting, and Michelle's given permission so I can share her name. And she sees you, and she said, like, go and see David. If you want to have a chat to someone, David's a person to chat with. I thought, well, why not? You know, give it another try. And I've come to learn that seeing a psychologist, it's a bit like any health professional, if it's a physio, osteo, It's about Mm. finding the one that's the right fit for you and I'm so glad that I found you because you've helped me on my journey and I really would love to share with people what even is psychology? Mm. Why do people come? How can we benefit? But before we get to that, before we get to that juicy stuff, I would love to know from you, David, did you always want to be a psychologist?
1: Uh, No, no, definitely not. I'm not one of those people. I remember being at uni and some people were really clear on that straight up. I oh, know they wanted to be a psychologist or a clinical psychologist. And uh, look, I suppose I fell into it like a lot of people do into their careers. And geez, all those points you're making, uh, there's so many things I'd like to respond to. But um, look, I've always been this kind of uh, somewhat a uh, bit obsessive in a way, observer of natural systems and nature. And as a kid growing up, you know, I, I bred lots of things. I bred fish in aquariums, I bred birds. I spent a lot of time outside with horses and and pets and other things like that and played sports. I was constantly observing systems. And I think, in a way, psychology lends itself to people who uh, do get into that, who are naturally drawn into relationships between systems, emotions, you know, cognitions, thoughts. Uh, and behaviors so uh yeah that's how I sort of fell into it I, I didn't I didn't certainly didn't go to university thinking I wanted to be a psychologist and eventually fell into sports psychology uh at some point worked in elite sport and then kind of wanted to expand it a little bit and so then um tend to find myself in more health or clinical settings so you know perhaps um yeah that's that's kind of my story in a, in a nutshell anyway
0: Oh, that's just so fascinating to think about that young boy that's just observing systems and how it works and how that's what you do every day now, knowing that as individuals we influence systems all the time.
1: We do, and I think that is the, you know, you you raise that point about coming to a psychologist's office and immediately feeling a little bit like you are pathologised, like there's something wrong with you. I think it's something we need to do better in therapy. I think it shows up in the rates of Men that don't engage well in in the therapeutic process in that way, and they tend to drop out early. Um, and certainly, I've been in that. You know, I've seen psychologists myself, and I remember leaving one time and going, "Well, there's an hour of my life I'm never getting back." But uh, so, yeah, I can hear how that happens, and it is a it's a it's a fine line that what you're referring to. It's a it's a curious chemistry uh, being real enough that it creates a certain kind of genuine uh, authentic intimacy and sharing and not feeling like you're being looked at like a scientific object. So, um, yeah, that's a a curious uh, process, that.
0: Absolutely. So for people out there who are curious about the idea of psychology, I remember growing up, the idea of going to a psychologist wasn't something that was talked about. I remember there was a psychologist at school like right in the back blocks and there was a bit of a story going around you know the mad cat lady you know all of these things that come <laughs> yeah. up and so we know that that's just a story that's a stereotype and I'd love people to think about and for you to explain what is a psychologist what is it that you do
1: Well that's I mean that is a really broad ranging question I suppose um, look what do we do Look in, in one way. There's just so many ways to look at that. In one way, it's a kind of um, it's kind of a love. It's that's that's a weird way to say this, but it's kind of like we're helping people understand what has led to you know their distress, uh, and it's usually distress that has them come through the door um, because people respond you know more to they they kind of seek aspirin rather than vitamins. That idea. Um, it's the way their pain points at is when they often present for help and i I think that's probably more broadly connected to it is through suffering often that people genuinely make change in their lives if if not if we're so comfortable we tend to you know the human system is designed to you know re-establish a homeostatic kind of level and so it won't take action and there is a it's different to seeing a doctor you're not just going there and passively, you know, kind of tell your story and passively accept what comes back to you. You're an active participant in the process. And so, what do psychologists do? Well, I think they're listening very deeply, they're, they're listening very carefully to the story and how that particular nervous system has attempted to make itself safe um, and make itself feel okay in the world in whatever way, you know, they have grown up. And so, very often, um, the the role of a psychologist is not about pathologizing. Instead, it's about how do we how do we live well enough with this really difficult and tricky thing called the human mind. Um, and and I think as individual psychologists, so myself, we're listening for what are the nuances in that individual mind, and how do we help you kind of manage it well enough? Uh, does that does that answer that you think, mate?
0: Yeah. Oh, I can already see asking me to think. (laughs) I I can catch that. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about just noticing, picking up those nuances. And something that you said there was about that relationship with the nervous system. So could you explore that a little bit further for people Mm. that may not be familiar with this idea about how the nervous system really influences the way that we feel and function?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, i find this completely fascinating but the nervous system for humans we're not really a top predator we've got arrived there very early in our evolutionary kind of history so we're not a natural predator we're more of a we're a herd we're a pack animal we are a lot about belonging and when we feel like we belong our nervous system feels kind of secure more secure in that um but of course we're we're born premature we're born with our nervous system not fully ready. So if you have a look, I think a giraffe within about 12 minutes of birth can run. You know, And I often say, for how long did it take you to learn how to run? And you know, for most humans, that's at least three years, sometimes more. And there's no way that they're at all independently functioning until at least 10. That's a massive upfront investment in time, energy from that. And where do you get that? where well, you you've got to get it from your group. So if you're not connected in your group, your nervous system essentially is going to say, uh, this isn't a safe environment. And uh, when it's saying that, it starts to alter the way the nervous system functions. And so when we're now the, you know, of course, we, can't, we don't have an X-ray machine for the nervous system. So at the moment, um, you know, notions of getting a, a tapping into someone's nervous system are largely around what they verbalise and then what their body is doing. And so we're looking very closely to get correlates of what their nervous system is up to. And then we're looking to help them hold themselves. Ideally, we hold them to begin with, they kind of borrow our prefrontal cortex for a little while to help regulate and stay in a space that they then learn to do it themselves around anything that might be fearful. Uh, and so fears, that's the it's the main one that drives us. There's other, um, you know, other uh, drivers, of course, um, but that's often the one that we're working with. Yeah. So, yeah, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So it sounds like when someone's working with you in the room, you're creating a space where their nervous system feels settled enough to be able to be in that conversation and then probably look at things that they normally wouldn't be able to look at because they're feeling that safety, that security. And what that brings up for me is that first 10 years when we're developing this, that those initial experiences must be really transformative or foundational for how we respond for the rest of our life.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So they are the, you know, they're the foundation and formative years. Uh, You know, of course, there is another part to it and I I sometimes wonder if psychology is overstated, the, the nurture, uh, part of that relationship, there there isn't temperament that you're born with, and that will make your nervous system kind of you know, a bit more likely to be either you know responding to fear stimuli or uh, responding in other ways. So, um, but yeah, for sure, those those early years uh, have a have a big influence on the kind of narratives that you get running in the back of your mind. They're hard. They're hard to track. They're like whispers. They're just it's that idea of they're just in your peripheral vision. Um, but they, they, it's temporary. They only come in and out, and they come in more obviously when we're suffering, when we're struggling with life. Um, so the idea in the room is to get it safe enough that people will get into that space where they allow them to come out of the periphery and into, the, into a more uh, accessible space and then to help guide them back into that in a more voluntary adult-type way. Because, of course, when they formed up, a child doesn't have the reflective uh, or abstract capacity to stand back and critically understand whether the, the ways of responding are helpful in the long term or not. But as adults, we do. And that's where therapy, that's where therapy does its thing in the, in the adult context.
0: So it sounds like therapy is really creating a space for people to step back a little bit and just notice what's happening in their life, notice the thoughts, catch the thoughts, and then look at it and decide, is this helpful? Is it unhelpful? Is it serving me? Do I need to use this? Do I need to think about it differently? And really trying to create just more space in our minds.
1: Yep, absolutely. So space in their mind and then the willingness or um, you know a little further along is the willingness to then push into those, those places that, uh, create struggle for them and kind of realign them or, you know, sometimes not even getting rid of them or, or necessarily changing them, but allowing them to be there without the the secondary effect, which is of the, you know, the self-criticism or the condemning of self about how we might have responded. So that's the, you know, so, you know how this relates to teachers, I think, is fascinating because a lot of teachers, in fact, I'd say a lot of people in the helping professions, uh, doctors, uh, you know physio, psychologists uh, teachers they've often got early narratives around being being given an emotional cookie if you like for being a helper for being uh, useful in their group <laughs> and that's that's really nice to have in a way it serves a purpose but of course then the adolescent and then the adult identity forms up around that so if that's taken away from them or their experience is that that's taken away from them uh, that can throw them in a bit of a dilemma and they can often uh, lead to them, you know, finding it difficult to say no, uh, stretching themselves too thin, and I refer to this as a, kind of the helper's dilemma, that in an attempt to do the right thing to honour these early narratives, um, they can, you know, they get into situations where they, they try to do too much and they spread themselves too thin and it makes them prone to burnout and other, uh, you know, other resentment-based uh, problems.
0: Oh, well, David, you've just explained half my audience. So <laughs> there's, uh-huh. there's a free one there, team, to actually just think about this narrative and maybe even there's an invitation there to think about that identity of being a helper. Mm. And what we know and what I've learned through working with you is sometimes our biggest strengths, you know, my biggest strength is I can make it happen, I can get stuff done, you know, I can do this, can also be... <laughs> Our biggest weakness because it can come at a cost when we overplay it. So what you've talked about there, you know, spreading yourself too thin, Mm. being that person, yes, ask a busy person, I'll get it done. Finding it hard to say no, finding it hard to have boundaries, finding it hard when people are disappointed and finding it hard when other people are uncomfortable or struggling and trying to work through all of that. You know, that's really hard things to work on. And from working with you and all the learning I've done, I've learned that once you start to identify this, when you start to catch it, you can show up in much more authentic ways because when you give, you give from a place of space and energy and a willingness. Mm. compared to I know in the earlier days I was giving from a place of resentment, bitterness, or this idea of, well, I'll sacrifice now because hopefully I'll get something later. Like if I just, you know, I'll just get my time to shine when the kids grow up or, you know, all these things. But doesn't quite work like that.
1: Yeah, and the the danger, of course, is like any emotional control strategy, it kind of can work in the short term. Beer. Beer works, you know, like beer works for a few hours Problem is, there's an eight-hour, you know, kind of lag afterwards where it disturbs your sleep, where you can feel crappy about. So you're dehydrated, and it doesn't work in the long term. And so, yeah, that, you know, yeah, the payoff. I'll be okay when I get a new car. I'll be okay when we've decorated the kitchen or redone, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, it's a, it's very tempting, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky play. You're right. The mind is kind of cunning. It can sneak in around, can come in the side door. And so, you know, therapy plays a role here, I suppose, in terms of getting to know the patterns. And then, when the patterns are known well enough, it, we can help reflect that back. And when there's enough uh, access, I like, you know I refer to as access, I suppose, um, it can quite easily develop a common language where it doesn't take much to just get the you know, your patient and your client. Uh, whoever you're working with, to be able to, they catch themselves, So you're you, you're just doing it. And I know we spoke the other day, and you gave me a really good example of when you're able to catch yourself. Um, and that's a highly, that's quite a highly developed skill. And uh, I mean, I think the other part of this is we don't, we we probably relinquish a lot of the the cultural uh, aspects. Um, that trained children and trained us in learning how to do this. We're not watching Greek tragedies anymore as a group and learning well, what are the what are the strings to pull out of that. Uh, so yeah, and and so psychologists play part of that role.
0: Oh, I think you play a massive role. And I just think of my experience over the time. I used to be edgy about something. I have a bit of tension about something. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get to my David appointment. And then we'd have this conversation. It's like, oh. It's just the intensity is gone. Mm. I've got a bit of perspective now and understanding, and a few years down the track, you know, I've set it up now. It's my mind maintenance, part of my wellbeing strategy. I see David every quarter, and I look at mind maintenance just like we look at servicing a car. You know, it's so interesting that here in Australia, we're much more comfortable of servicing our car than servicing our mind, which is the most important thing that we've got. And so I set that up, and what I've noticed now is. I am better at catching things. So something that used to get under my skin or really irritate me and probably I'd be thinking on it for a few weeks, Mm. now it's just a matter of a few hours. I can catch it, I can look at it, I can journal, Mm. I can understand it and move on. Is that something what happens regularly with clients?
1: Uh, Look, we'd we'd love it too. Uh, (laughs) It's it's so varied, Meg, and you're right, that is some of the things, and you've made a really interesting distinction there, which is you're not talking about that you don't get activated. It's not like that's gone, and that's a false idea of what mental health is. Uh, it's more about, I can I mean, I quite like the analogy of the beach, uh, and that is, you know, the waves keep coming. Some days they're big, some days they're small. They're never, they're never permanent. A wave never stops halfway through the break, Um But it's always changing, and we just get we kind of get better at writing them or going under them or being able to, you know, watch them come and go. And so that's a nice and so that is really what we're looking for. It's less about we're going to change your life situation, and it can lead to a point of conflict or or difficulty in the room where people sometimes come in going, you know, take my problems away. That's sort of what they're saying in a way that they try not to say it that directly, but it's kind of what they're saying to us. And so there needs to be enough trust in the room to be able to, you know, help. You know, there's a kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of, it's patronising to take someone's problem from them in a way, an, an adult. So it's kind of an, an act of giving in a way to let them be with their problem and know and trust that they have the resources to be able to um, find a way to manage it themselves. So, yeah, that's... Uh, so what you're describing there, really, that's a, a really nice example of how it w- you still will get activated. Of course you will if you didn't care about anything. Well, then <laughs> you're not going to care about anything. That's, that's, a, that's a different kind of problem.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm just laughing because I sure do get activated. You know, we've had lockdown here, two small children, business, all these things. Life still happens and it's. I find it much easier now to process it. And that's why because I've, I've got the space and I've also got the skills and strategies that I've learned through working with you over time that it just allows me to enjoy life more. Like mm. I've got probably more happening in my life than ever before, but my body is, well, I'm thinking now my nervous system mm. is feeling much more able to manage it, has a wider capacity. It's like my bandwidth has grown.
1: Mm, yeah and that's that's a lovely outcome and i you know i suppose there's an egoic part of me that would like to think that that you know the psychotherapeutic process has played a part in that and you're you're attributing it to that and i, I hope that's you know true um you're also on your own maturation journey meg and, and that would be part of it as well um and and so yeah but that is the that's the idea that increase the bandwidth rather than control the problem all the time and, and the indicator is that that notion of suffering it's you know, I think I've probably said this to you, maybe that idea of, uh, and it's an old idea, you know, most of the stuff in psychology is kind of stolen from other places of philosophy and other areas, but, you know, painful event in life multiplied by our resistance to it equals the, the amount of suffering, and it's the suffering you'll notice first that then can take you back, well, what's the painful event? What was the thing that got me? It got me activated, or at least that I thought got me activated, and then you go, well, what am I resisting in that event? And that's the harder part because our mind uh, wants to say it's not me. It wants to defend itself. And so it will go looking for external activator. And so trying to draw that back and working that little space of what's my resistance and what can I you know, do about it and how do I accept it, um, that's a harder thing to do. And you you have, yeah, you're right, you have dived into that um, and that has increased your bandwidth, which is Yeah, it's a lovely
0: outcome. (laughs) I'm laughing here because I'm thinking of times where I'm like, oh, just give me the answer. Yes. (laughs) You know, give me the answer. And you brought up this beautiful point before that as an adult, working with an adult, it is about respecting that they have autonomy, they have capacity. And it makes me think that for a lot of adults working with people in caring, students, even parents with their own children, is we step in too quick And we do rob people of the opportunity to solve problems, to be in discomfort because we're uncomfortable with other people's discomfort and we're uncomfortable. We want to fix things. And I know that's one thing of me naturally. I have this urge to want to just smooth it out. If I could fix it, I could do it. If I could book someone an appointment, I'll book an appointment, like all of those things. And I've actually had to learn to step back and allow other people the space to step in
1: yeah and that's quite a it's quite a again quite a high level skill to be able to notice the urge resist it for a little bit resist that urge to step in and help which is kind of like a self rescue and then allow them to have their problem because it's bringing them to a place uh where they can you know they can essentially grow from uh this is their gym and your life will bring you your own very uh perfectly nuanced set of problems and and don't think just because you know uh you know i'm trained in this or any psychologist is trained in this stuff that you know we too don't have our suffering we do and we've got our own perfectly shaped uh pebbles in our shoes so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and and it is a curious you know just i suppose touching on that you know I, I, there's a backstory here a little bit isn't there in terms of Uh, perhaps reducing the the size or the perceived size of the hurdle of, you know, looking after yourself. And um, one of those things is that, you know, it's a curious chemistry that that is. And I often say to people, you know, look, um, if there's a good fit, you'll probably get something helpful out of this. If there's not, you probably won't. And that's okay. Like we don't... We don't fit with every psychologist. So if that's not the case, it's not personal, it's not about you and it's not about them necessarily, but just move on until you find where there is a good fit, where you feel like someone uh, gets you and can see you, Um, and that will usually then allow a helpful process to take place.
0: That's so interesting, David, because I've had so many friends that have started with a psychologist and probably wasn't the right fit but then maybe started with another one. So how can we distinguish between it's not the right fit and it's or getting a bit uncomfortable because maybe bringing things to the surface that we may not want to look at? Is there a way we can distinguish that?
1: Look, uh Well, you know, there's—I don't know if there's a a way we can distinguish that, and uh, but there's certainly some indicators we can use. Like one, you probably need to give it a—you know—at least a go. But you probably have a pretty good sense within the first session or two uh, that this is going to be a reasonable fit, and it shouldn't be about what I agree with. If it's all that cognitive, and I just didn't agree with their perspective, you might find that that that's not a great reason. But if you can sense that this person. Understands you and can hold a place for you to bring what you really would like to bring to the room, then that's probably a good indicator. That's a that's a good fit. If not, um, well, that's okay. That maybe that style is not gonna you know it's not gonna work for you. So you know a couple of things there. You should probably be able to tell within the first couple of sessions. And two, it, you know, it shouldn't just be about um, what, whether you agree with the content. Um, it's more about whether they can uh feel like they whether you feel like they can actually see you. So, you know, I've given a bit of an example, uh speaking to a, a client today, and he he just he went through, he was saying something really quite fast. He just dodged a little bit of it, he didn't finish his sentence. And we just went back and I, I kind of could hear his nervous system avoiding that. And I said so I just took him back to it. I wanted and I asked him just to, oh, what was what was that? I just you didn't quite finish that sentence. And it was in that times in that moment I could feel this well two things happened. I felt myself really kind of kick into really listening and attuning kind of my nervous system to his, but I could feel him go, ah, right, you just you just saw something that I can't see about myself. And uh yeah that mattered to him.
0: Mm. Well it mm. sounds like you're really building trust. And so as you're building trust his nervous system settling so it's allowing him to work through because I'm guessing it's pretty hard to work through things if you're feeling like the person you're talking to is judging you like I did that day when yes. I had the notepad and, and feeling completely judged. So when people do make an appointment with you, David, is it generally out of inspiration or desperation? <laughs> <laughs> uh-
1: yeah, look, it's both, but I'd say desperation is the more common one. Um, I very often have, you know, my wife said I really need to come, or my husband said I really need to come. So you know, that's and that, that's an important thing, I think, in a way that it's people who love us and care about us that often will direct us there because we may be a little frightened of what we might find out about ourselves, or uh, and and nearly always we're more frightened than we need to be. But it can take some, you know, tracking. Uh, of that sort of, you know, the first step to, to believe that. Um, so, but, yeah, it is definitely, it does tend to be, I mean, and our culture tells us this too, doesn't it? It tells us to that if it feels good, we're okay. If it doesn't feel good, it's kind of wrong. And so it's often only when uh, things aren't feeling good or they're feeling particularly bad that our, our culture suggests, you know, now it's time for you to go and take action around that. And uh, so, yeah, more, more often in, in a kind of crisis or existential crisis, at least.
0: And I'm just thinking now, David, is there many people who you've worked with who say, oh, I wish I came here 10 years ago or five years ago or earlier?
1: Yes, yeah, there are many people, including myself. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think we all probably do that, don't we? The magnificent benefit or perceived benefit of hindsight. Um, and I, I must admit, I nearly always, you know, obviously I hear that and I'll sometimes ask why um, and I'll try to normalise that is, you know, you're on your own uh, particular path and, and maturation journey, and, and you're not, if you come to that, if you try to come to that too early, like it, it won't work, you won't be ready. Um, so, you know, you're there when you're there and, and that's okay.
0: That's a beautiful point because I guess readiness is a really important part of the process.
1: Any, yeah, for sure, any change process or, um, you know, growth process is about readiness, isn't it? And you know, we get a good view of that when we're potty training our kids. Uh, try and try and try and they don't do it and then literally when they're ready you give them the least the tiny little bit of stimulation and bang, they'll just catch it and away yeah. they go. Um, yeah,
0: it's so true. It's like some people can flirt with an idea and it's happening in a day, other people it's 10 years and then they're off and running. We're all different and thinking about that readiness. And then I'd love for you to share, when people first come to you, what are some common things that bring people to you?
1: Yeah, look, um, I think that the easy, in some ways the glib or easy answer is to go, oh, well, it's anxiety or it's depression or it's these these sort of terms that get that, thrown that right around pretty easily now um, and in some ways that's really helpful, but in other ways it kind of pathologizes normal human distress. Uh, I'd, I'd have to say, you know, the majority of it is what I, uh, you know, again I stole this term I think from uh, Yalom, but uh, matters of the heart, you know, things that interrupt their key relationships either with their children, with their spouses or, you know, intimate partners or with their, in their, their family. Uh, so they're very often, um, uh, you know, it's often a, a big reason why people come to deal with that. Uh, and then the other ones are major life changes, and that can be lost, you know, a loss of someone, loss of a job. It's a major life adjustment. Um, and that can also include uh, neurological sort of conditions too, which um, can form either as a disease process and so the form Parkinson's or some other things, or, or just in the, the way that a world has changed and you're, you know, trying to manage it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, matters of the heart, I would say, is the biggest one, and and then it's, you know, other significant life changes.
0: And so do you notice some common themes that people work through when they're working with you?
1: Yeah. Um, without doubt, I, I think one of the... the biggest themes is this notion of just kind of being really stuck in their own you know in their own mind in their 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 mind story of how one should be and and so and this is kind of tough because some of these are actually really they've almost become you know or in in how we function and um so look that's a big one um you know some other common themes are about you know, letting go of the need to be a certain way. To, to They've often, you know, grown up believing that this equals, you know, living a successful life and it's worked for them at some point. It's not like it was never helpful. It probably was very, very helpful. Um, so, you know, the, the high performer, for instance, who's done well at school and they were good at uh, this sport and then they were, they were good at managing things in their family in certain ways. And then at some point they realise that so much of their identity is around achievement or performance and, and, you know, at some point there's a different relationship has to kick in because we don't teach forever. We're not a doctor forever. We're not a, a, you know, footballer forever. Um, And so at some point that does require a shift in your relationship that's, you know, around identifying with a sense of being rather than doing. Um, now I think this is probably largely bred out of a you know a, a culture that's a bit obsessed with you know, achievement and, and and control in a way.
0: Absolutely, and I'm laughing because I was that perfect um, A-type personality stereotype. Went to the right school and then did my uni degree. Taught at the right school. Did my masters. Like just sort of you know nailing it. Like tick 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 tick. Yeah. And then having a few life events that sort of threw me mm. and then making that decision, I need a break, I need 12 months, I'm going to a new space. And then arriving in Toowoomba not knowing a soul. Yeah. And it was really quite shaking as mm. far as my identity and it was completely confronting and liberating to walk into a school, no one knew who I was Like my surname is a surname that lots of people know. Like my maiden name is Danaher. It's a a known name in Victoria. Oh, yeah. Queensland, no one one knows. (laughs) And just having that freedom to actually build up my sense of self based on what I'm doing in that environment. And something that I found tricky, and I'm not sure if other people find this, David, is making friends as an adult, Mm. when you have always had friends easily, you've had yeah. friends at your school, you've had friends at uni, maybe you had friends at work, and then going to a whole new place. And I found for the first time in my whole life
1: mm. I
0: had hours free, like hours. Yeah. When I lived in Melbourne, I didn't have a minute free. Oh, yeah. And then I got to Toowoomba, I had hours free, and I remember having periods of time where I was so homesick and I'd be crying and I'd be journaling and, and then I'd be right the next day. And then I'm just thinking about do people have these periods in their life where it's just a massive change, this massive adjustment of what I thought was success Mm. versus what's my heart? Maybe it's what you're talking about, the matters of the heart, what my heart is really yearning for and allowing for that process?
1: Yeah, definitely they do, and that's often when they, you know, present to doctors or, you know, other supports in their community and it's. yeah, look, and it, it's a point worth noting me. You, you're talking, you know, you're talking more broadly there, and it's a beautiful point you make, that uh, we like our individualist kind of culture, likes to believe it's us that has confidence. But your confidence, I think, is far more, uh, you know, it's spread out, it's in a web, it's it's interwoven amongst your family and your friend group. <laughs> and so once upon a time, the time we evolved, We probably only ever stayed with that group. It was very unusual for us to be plucked from that group, whereas now people get on a plane and fly and relocate their life in a totally different either location or culture, um, and that's just seen as part of the course, and and that can often lead to sort of a a pretty significant crisis or or transformation and often both, and you experience that when you strip away some of that interwovenness with your group um, and what you'd always done, what you needed to do as a child, which was take that for granted, that allowed your uh, self to form up. Okay, but that gets stripped away, and all of a sudden, it's a it's a different reality that your you know, system is in. And so, you know, all of a sudden, just making friends or developing friendship groups becomes uh, it's you know you start to question that, and you go, gee, this isn't that easy. And, uh, and that will feel like there's something wrong with me. The body will signal that as distress, as reduced mood, disturbed sleep, uh, increased anxiety, increased heart rate, reduced appetite, drop in libido. It'll, it'll signal that in all these, all these ways. So we might call depression or a depressive episode. Um, however, we could easily also call that a, an adjustment kind of process. And so, you know, this is the mind signaling for where's my group and needing to recreate a group. Um yeah. So you now of course there are some people for whom this is completely unimportant and they they can be quite frightening individuals. They can also be very helpful during war times, but they're pretty rare, those folk.
0: Mm, absolutely. Now I'm just laughing to myself because I remember that time in Toowoomba, you know, it would have be been a few weeks, my god, like, oh, I haven't found a friend, haven't got a friend, you know, eventually <laughs> um made an excellent lifelong friend, which was just wonderful. And then we moved again and we were in another area for five years. It took me majority of that time to make some really strong relationships, but mm. I just knew that it took time. And so now when we've moved again, I'm like, well, if I can make a good friend in five years, that'd be that'd be pretty good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've learned yeah. through experience.
1: You have, haven't you? And uh yeah. So this time you kind of, you know, yep, the beautiful benefit of experience. You've kind of been you're able to be a bit more patient with yourself.
0: Absolutely. So when people are thinking about the idea, maybe people, I'm hoping people might be inspired by this conversation to find some space where they can stop and think and just catch a few things and develop this idea of mind maintenance, just like we maintain our body, we maintain our cars, maintain our minds. What do you think are some of the long-term benefits of maintaining our mental health?
1: Oh, well, yeah. Um... I mean, geez, that's a, that's a broad-ranging question. It's, it's actually a really curious thing that we don't – there is probably no one variable more than how we view the world and our life situation that has a bigger impact on our emotional health, our wellbeing. And, and of course, these things aren't separate. They're, that flows into your physical health. Um, so there's that. But I think the other one is that there is some preparation always underway, whether we know it or not. The system is preparing for something, preparing to be a parent, or it's preparing to be to deal with loss in some way, because uh, the mind is acutely aware that things end, and humans aren't that great at dealing with endings quite often. So the other part of this is is that mind maintenance can allow you to begin to. And, and the saying in philosophy, I suppose, is to die before you die. That's seen as, you know, uh, seen as this kind of key to living a good life, is that when one is able to relinquish uh, what we've always taken for granted as needing to have a good life, well, we, it's far easier to accept certain things, including the loss of loved ones, including the loss of you know, the graceful surrender of youth, uh, uh, to quote good old Desiderata. But uh, so we get better at letting things go um and and that's an incredible benefit especially as you uh you know get into the second half of your life and as you you know have children and and watch them grow and inevitably see them hurt through the slings and arrows of life
0: yeah and You know, being a parent, that's probably its own um, personal, professional development in itself. Like it's just such a process of, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, our children can be the greatest teachers. And I also think that with our students, like it's seeing ourselves in others sometimes makes us realise, wow, there are some things that we've got such beautiful strengths and we've got some struggles. And if we can work with someone to unpick that, yeah. We're giving ourselves the opportunity to just breathe a little easier.
1: Yeah, you you put that well, Meg. And I, I think that's yeah something I probably didn't just mention there is you know whether it's with our children or with our uh, you know pupils or people we're working essentially we're in relationship with these people, aren't we? It gives us a bit more space to be able to hold a space and be present to them, and that's valuable anywhere. That's valuable as a teacher working with uh, you know students. Uh, my son told me a beautiful example uh, last night of a teacher, and said he watched him as this uh, kid didn't read the social cues and he asked a question in the middle of a tense period in the class. And he saw the teacher kind of almost react and then <laughs> was able to kind of hold himself, regulate, and then just answer the question and, and move it on. And I was, you know, we were saying how skillful that was, you know. I was was quite envious of him in in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that's a real benefit of this mind maintenance sort of idea too is as you develop these skills, you're you're able to hold a space for those difficult interactions that we're all going to have, be it in our job if we're a teacher or, you know, in any kind of work we do or if it's at your local, you know, sporting ground and you're in an argument over... You know, the the cricket is coming under the ground before the footy's finished to do some maintenance or something.
0: You know, <laughs> absolutely. It's it's really for me in my mind. I'm thinking this maintenance. If we look at our mind and maintain it, it allows us l- more headspace, which allows us more perspective, which allows us more understanding. And then if we're feeling more comfortable in our bodies, so our nervous system's more comfortable then that's going to allow us to be in deeper relationships with other people because we're settled and we're feeling connected.
1: Yeah, and and there's where you start now talking, you know, I feel a little bit like a financial advisor here. That's when you start to see the exponential change. Um, And it's not like we've got to be careful we don't go, oh, I've got to achieve that uh, because then we set it up for a struggle in that way. But that's when you're now going, oh, deepening relationships. Oh, I feel more connected. I seem to now have more space to be in that relationship and others. Oh, I have now had more deepened relationships. And so you're getting a, an upward curve there in more than one way. Uh, the nervous system is also then going, oh, I'm, I'm more okay with being because I'm, I've am i got my people around me, you know, and I know where, where I fit in that to a degree. Of course, that can change. But you, you know enough that it can regulate you during, you know, bigger breaking waves.
0: And I've actually never thought of it like this, David, but for a lot of people, maybe working with a psychologist or a therapist may be the first time they've had a relationship that feels completely safe and unconditional.
1: And that's, I think it's a really good point. It is one of the few spaces where people, you can actually literally give yourself permission to be, uh, you know, kind of looked after, to be genuinely seen and to um And then also to reflect and see yourself but not as you are right then but who you have been and to have a a different sort of compassion for that that isn't about driving yourself harder. Um, Yeah, So, and and that's definitely true. And, you know, in therapy we talk about the difference sometimes between abuse and neglect and, you know, in some ways, you know, if you get kicked in life, at least you're worth kicking. Um, if, if someone, if you're just ignored, um, that's one of the hardest things. So people, sometimes when people come from quite neglectful backgrounds, even if all their other needs are taken care of, their capacity to actually, um, you know, recognise how frightened they are of experiencing themselves, um, it, it's new for them. Yeah, it feels like, uh, and it can feel uncomfortable at first. Their body will often signal, uh, I'm in distress or I'm wary and and you know helping them sit with that is is part of what we do because the body will signal that that's not a it's not that's not pathology again that's the body just just getting ready
0: yeah <laughs> our body likes things to be predictable doesn't it so what it's used to <laughs> it, it likes to do so to that's sit in a relationship where someone's looking at you unconditionally understanding you getting really curious you know that's so different because a lot of relationships in our life there's competing agendas if it's our colleagues, if it's our students, if it's our parents, if it's our children. So, there's not many relationships in our life that there's not a competing agenda.
1: Yes, and that's so true. I think, it's particularly true for teachers, isn't it? You know, managing these relationships where there must be an instinctive part to get closer to the student, but also being very aware that to try and get too close, the student's going to react, oh, I don't want to be seen as a teacher's pet, but to be too hard as well would be a very hard way to live in what is you know, this environment where a normal natural desires is, desire is to connect in order to learn from that. And I think teachers, there's a lot of emotional energy that, that goes into that and it's not really spoken about that much.
0: Oh, the emotional labor with working with other humans is just through the roof. And I know when I came into teaching, I was naturally on that harder side, you know, don't smile till Easter, you know, yeah. let them know who's <laughs> boss and work through all that. And I've now learned that relationships are everything Mm. if you can build a relationship kids will do things for you they will take feedback they will take whatever if they feel safe enough if they feel that trust and I think that translates into every area of our life if it's our partners if it's our friends if we can be honest with them and we build up that trust you can have more more robust conversations
1: absolutely yeah and it is through that vulnerability that true intimacy is built yep
0: and what a gift if we could, you know, create a world where it's more okay to be seen for who we are, the strengths and struggles, and to maybe just pause that need for constant performing and perfecting and, you know, mm-hmm. to be seen at a certain identity. It would be just such a gift for all of us. As we wrap up, David, mm-hmm. I'd love you to just take a moment to think about this idea. If there's someone who's listening... Who's like? Yep, I really get it now. This whole mind maintenance, a psychologist. What do you think the next step would be for them to find a psychologist? Like, what do you? Where do you do? What do you do? Do you look on the internet or how do you find a psychologist?
1: Oh well, you know, uh, there's there's an APS service called Find a Psychologist. Uh, that's a, that's a place to start. Uh, I mean, you can you can Google them. You'll see, you know, they'll come up. Uh, I think often a very uh, good path is via your GP because the GPs in the local area, they generally have a pretty good idea and they'll know you would agree. So they'll sort of probably suggest someone who they believe you'll have a good fit with and that matters uh, as we've spoken about. So uh, that's a good path. And then there's friends and and family members and colleagues sort of, you know, begin to go, is there anyone who you've heard of or have you worked with anyone And, and get recommendations like that. Um, and then you can go, you can just call them directly and, and make appointments or you can, uh, quite often, the medical centres will, uh, they'll be able to, you know, contact them for you sometimes to see if this place is available. Um, and then look, it's a wide open world now. There's a you know, there's a, a platform called Listen L-Y-S-N, and I, I'm not trying to plug it, I'm just saying, you know, you can you can connect via your phone with a therapist. So that whole idea of telehealth, And that kind of work now is far more accessible than it was even even two years ago. Uh, So, uh, yeah, that's probably a good next step. Um, But getting the fit, I think, is, you know, we're we're trying to answer that a little bit. And your GP, people who know you, uh, people who care about you often will be able to give you some pointers in the right direction there.
0: That is such good advice. Yeah, I remember when Michelle mentioned it and I was just, oh, we were housemates at the time and she used to head off and be all hot under the collar about something and then she'd come back and like, oh, it all makes sense. Like, oh, I've got to go to suss this out. This is great <laughs> to have someone to talk to. And I talk about it freely. People in my family know that I see David, my friends know I see David, And if I've got like a meaty issue at the moment, like, oh, when's your next David appointment? Or you know, it's just a normal part of everyday life. So this is what I hope for everybody to have a normal part of their everyday life, a space to be with someone, to talk through things, to maintain your mind and see the benefits of life when you've got someone else to work with you and to maybe go beyond that stereotype of a psychologist. Go beyond the idea of you're going to be lying on a couch and go back in time. It's two people having a chat and, you know, there's so many benefits for it. So, David, as we wrap up, I have four um, sentence starters. Uh, Would you you be willing to um, play along?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll give it a go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the first question is, I am inspired by...
1: Uh, well, I think that's probably nature and systems. I think I probably you know, kind of answered that one a little bit earlier on.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, number two, when life feels hard.
1: Get connected, um, not digitally, um, but get connected, you know, reach out for your group.
0: Love that. It's so true. Uh, number three, an underrated skill is?
1: Well, I'm an old ACDC fan and I, I loved I love Bon Scott's line. Doing nothing means a lot to me, which you know perhaps is is more uh, translated into you know that notion of surrender or or acceptance of learning to be, not do. I think it's a real challenge for us nowadays. Um, so yeah, yeah, maybe doing nothing, just being.
0: <laughs> so cool. And number four, I am looking forward to. Uh
1: Gee, this is this is an interesting one. I'm looking forward to, as you know, I grew up in WA, so I'm looking forward to connecting nature uh, systems uh, in WA at some stage in the future. Um, or my more cheeky answer to that probably would be um, not looking forward. <laughs> not looking forward reflexively anyway.
0: <laughs> oh, David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing this conversation, I just know it's going to open the hearts and minds of people and I'm really grateful for your time and all the work that you do.
1: Thank you, Meg. I much appreciated the uh, invite and and what you were doing and uh, all the best to you.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Every time I talk with David, I learn more about myself and more about others. And what struck me during this conversation is just how important it is to have a space, a space to safely share what's in our minds, what's worrying us, what's keeping us awake at night, to process the challenges of everyday life, to have a space to think about our thinking and feel our feelings without having to worry how other people are receiving the information, how it's going to impact other people And I am so passionate about creating a world that maintains our mind just like we maintain our body or maintain a car that we put effort and strategy behind it. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to stop, take a moment and think about the following two questions. Number one, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to improve your well-being? To keep in the loop with the latest news, special announcements and practical ways to feel good and live well, subscribe to the well-loved Thought of the Week. If you or your school community would love to take the next step on your well-being journey, reach out. I offer a range of well-being programs that are purposely designed to help you feel good, function well and relate better. It is possible to feel good, function well, and relate better. If you are ready, I am here to work with you. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues. I truly believe that it's individual conversations that can move our collective forward, one conversation at a time. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. thank you for listening to an episode of the school of well-being this episode was proudly brought to you by open mind education open mind education is committed to sharing well-being education that makes sense to learn more visit the website openmindeducation.com there you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.